0: Once Israel was established, it didn't take long for Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion to put his foot in his mouth. Let's chalk it up to excitement. He was so jazzed by the success of the Zionist movement and the creation of the first Jewish state that he hopped over to the United States, thanked and congratulated America's Jews for their support, and then demanded that, okay, now you all need to move to Israel. What Ben-Gurion perhaps didn't Appreciate was that America's Jews didn't want to move to Israel. They were pretty content in what they considered their own Jewish homeland, American democracy. It was a tension between the two Jewish communities that persists to this day. The United States and American Jewry have been Israel's greatest allies, and there's also been a lot of complexities in those relationships. A thousand books have already been written about this subject. I'm just going to talk about two big themes that are both separate and interconnected the relationship between the Jewish state and America's Jews, and the relationship between Israel and the American government. Both play off of and into each other, and both are a bit more complicated than you might think on the surface. So today is going to be a graduate level course in America and Israel, boiled down to like 20 minutes. We're in the home stretch of season four here, and remember it's all leading us towards this big war that happens in 1967, the Six Day War. All the threads of the last few episodes are going to start coming together. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is the 101st episode of Jew I Don't Know. I would say to young people and that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. So first, let's talk about Israel's relationship with America's Jews. It goes back even before the state was established in 1948, and a convenient place to start might be even before the Zionist movement itself was launched in 1897. In 1885, a group of American reform rabbis met in Pittsburgh to hammer out a modern approach to Jewish ritual, practice, and belief that would fit the needs of modern American Jews. A part of that approach, which was known as the Pittsburgh Platform, was a rejection of the Zionist idea. That is, a rejection that Jews outside of the land of Israel were living in exile and are looking to someday return. The reason they felt this way hasn't actually changed all that much in the last 135 years for a lot of American Jews. For American Jews, the United States was the new Jewish homeland. Here in America, Jews could live freely and openly, enjoyed civil liberties and the benefits of citizenship, while being able to worship as they choose. Jews could run businesses and partake in the same or even better economic prosperity that America offered. They could, for the most part, belong both to the broader American society and to their own particular Jewish communities. They were fully Americans and had no need or desire to return to some desert wasteland in the Middle East. America was called the Golden Medina, that is, the golden country. The Jewish future lay in America, not in Palestine. So American Jews rejected the idea that they were living in some unfortunate exile state of existence that could only be corrected if they picked up and moved to Palestine. But by the middle of the second decade of the 1900s, several prominent Jewish leaders found a way for Americans to support Zionism while still remaining good American Jews, Henrietta Zold was one of the most well-known and influential leaders of the Jewish community in the early 1900s. A committed Zionist, she founded Hadassah in 1912, the Women's Zionist Organization of America. The organization's goal was to raise money and run programs for the health and education of Jews in the Yeshuv, the pre-state Jewish community of Palestine. They built hospitals, schools, clinics, and other welfare institutions throughout Palestine and later Israel. Henrietta Zold felt that the Jews of Europe were facing great peril, and therefore Zionism was the right approach to ensure Jewish survival and self-determination. It was important, she insisted, that even if you aren't a Zionist yourself, you still support the cause. You don't have to fully adopt Zionism in order to contribute money, time, and energy to Hadassah on behalf of the Jews it was supporting in Palestine. At the same time, Louis Brandeis, future Supreme Court Justice, became perhaps the most prominent and influential Zionist leader in the United States. He, too, found a way to persuade American Jews that supporting Zionism wasn't about having to move to Palestine, nor was it contradictory to their loyalty to America. Indeed, quite the opposite, he insisted. Let no American imagine that Zionism is inconsistent with patriotism, he said, every american jew who aids in advancing the jewish settlement in palestine though he feels that neither he nor his descendants will ever live there will likewise be a better man and a better american for doing so there is no inconsistency between loyalty to america and loyalty to jewry brandeis made zionism legitimate he made it cool to support and with his fame and attention catapulted the ideology to the forefront of american judaism It was especially attractive for non-religious Jews, people like Brandeis, who now found themselves supporting a progressive social justice cause that also tapped into their expressions of Jewish connection and identity. I, a proud American Jew, could help the beleaguered Jews of Europe create a model national homeland in the Holy Land, righting the wrongs of persecution, economic and religious oppression, while infusing my own Jewish identity with this meaningful social justice work. This wasn't dual loyalty this was cultural and religious solidarity zionism then had something to offer american jews whether religious or secular by the end of world war one it had become a powerful unifying agent across a broad diversity of american jewish life although not everyone was on board not everyone counted themselves as a zionist <laughs> Let's fast forward to the establishment of Israel in 1948. American Jews were ecstatic, like all Jews around the world, and they had made major contributions. American Jews had donated tens of millions of dollars to the Zionist project over the years. American veterans had flown fighter planes, crewed refugee ships, and trained Jewish fighters, all in the service of securing the Jewish state's independence. Yet few American Jews actually moved to Israel. (laughs) They were still committed to the rights, privileges, positions, and lifestyles they enjoyed in America. Indeed, American Jews were still far from unified around wholehearted support for Zionism. They didn't need it because they had America. And they didn't want it because they had America. Even those that did support Zionism supported it for the Jews of Eastern Europe, not for themselves. Once Israel was created, American Jews were happy to continue on with their Jewish lives in America. Exile? What exile? We have everything we need. This attitude was totally perplexing to Israel's leaders. We achieved this historic rebirth of the Jewish people and you guys want to sit it out now? More to the point, where the Zionist movement had endeavored to speak on behalf of the world's Jews, now the Israeli government was claiming that mantle. As well, that the Jewish state was now, by its existence, the center for world Jewry. And Ben-Gurion was talking it up big time. If he wasn't criticizing Jewish life in America, he was insisting that America's Jews move to Israel. America didn't need them, he argued, but Israel did. It was clear that America's Jews and the Jewish state were going to have to work on their communication skills, and each was going to have to think through its relationship to the other. Where Ben-Gurion led the Israeli squad, in the United States, the natural leader was Jacob Blaustein the head of a prominent and powerful Jewish organization called the American Jewish Committee. The AJC, the American Jewish Committee, was founded in 1906 as a Jewish global humanitarian organization, fighting on behalf of civil rights, against anti-Semitism and persecution, and for religious freedom, and not solely for the Jews. The AJC is still very much around today with offices all over the world and a major player in American foreign policy, one of the most important Jewish communal organizations then and now And back then, Jacob Blaustein wasn't having any of what Ben-Gurion was pushing. He reiterated the point that I've been making. American Jews supported Zionism on behalf of the Jews of Europe, but they were loyal to America, proud of its democracy, and had no intention of either moving to Israel or letting anyone in Israel tell them how to be good Jews. We repudiate vigorously, Jacob Blaustein insisted, the suggestion that American Jews are in exile. The future of American Jewry, of our children and our children's children, is entirely linked with the future of America. We have no alternative, and we want no alternative. And furthermore, he declared most famously there can be no single spokesman for world Jewry, no matter who that spokesman might try to be. I'm talking to you, Ben Gurion. In 1950, Ben-Gurion invited Blaustein to Israel, and the leaders sat down to hammer out an agreement over what Blaustein called the confusion and misunderstanding as to the relationship of Israel to Jews in other countries, particularly those in free democracies and especially in America. In August that year, with future Prime Ministers Golda Meir and Moshe Sharet looking on, Blaustein and Ben-Gurion came to a deal. Ben-Gurion acknowledged that Israel speaks only on behalf of its own citizens, not Jews in other countries, and that Israel would not interfere in the internal affairs of Jewish communities abroad. The agreement also acknowledged that American Jews have a political attachment only to the United States, their home. He did insist that Israel needed American know-how in Israel, but that a decision to move there would be entirely up to the individual, with no pressure coming from Israel. In exchange, Blaustein agreed that American Jews would continue their support of Israel, philanthropically and politically, and that American Jews would, in turn, not interfere with Israeli politics. More or less, this agreement governed that relationship for the next several decades. Neither side always adhered to its principles. Ben-Gurion remained baffled by the American attitude. He feared that without Zionism in Israel, Judaism and Jews would wither away. When in 1960 he remarked that Jews, wherever they are, have an obligation to emigrate to Israel and could not be fully Jewish without living in Israel, the American Jewish Committee responded. They were shocked at Ben-Gurion's grievous error in presuming to tell Jews outside of Israel what to do. The AJC praised the Prime Minister as a courageous leader and reminded him that American Jews have provided strong moral and financial support to Israel, His statement violated the principle that emigration was a free individual choice and, quote, undermined the sense of security and stability of American Jews, unquote. In turn, Israel had cause to complain that American Jews criticized various Israeli government policies over the years and publicly lobbied for change. All of this was a part of American Jewry's increasing awareness of and interest in Israel and its development as a Jewish and democratic state. As the 1950s turned to the 1960s, Israel education programs sprang up in Jewish communities, which included trips to the Holy Land. Israel's specific philanthropy increased. The Eichmann trial of 1961 reminded America's Jews of the horrors of the Holocaust and hammered home the importance of a Jewish haven. Leon Uris' 1958 book Exodus, followed by the 1960 movie, put a Hollywood spin on the heroism of Israel's establishment. In the main character Ari Ben kanin played by Paul Newman, American Jews found a role model that made Zionism in Israel look good, literally. Paul Newman, so good looking. All of this led to feelings of greater solidarity with Israel, which really skyrocketed after the Six Day War in 1967. And then there was the Cold War, which had divided the world into us versus them, democracies versus the non-democracies, in which Israel was clearly with the democracies. Upon his return from Israel in 1950, Jacob Blaustein declared that "...the most overwhelming and satisfying impression that one gains in Israel is the people there are building a real democracy," he said. "...for America and the other free democracies, it is of enormous significance to have in Israel not only a democratic form of government, but a way of life that is based on democratic and humane values. This, in a strategic part of the world where liberal democracy is otherwise practically unknown," I am confident that the vast majority of American Jewry will continue to recognize the necessity and desirability of helping to make Israel a strong, viable, self-supporting state. Israel, Blaustein added, is the best friend America ever had in the Near East. And by the early 1960s, Americans' politicians were coming around to that same idea. Throughout the 1950s, the United States was focused on containing communism and, as always, going after oil. In the Middle East, this meant vying for influence with the Arab countries against the Soviet Union. The United States wasn't about to go whole hog in for Israel and anger the Arabs, so its approach to Israel was careful. President Truman had thrown his support behind Israel at its establishment, much to the opposition of the State Department and the intelligence community, which thought that the Jewish state would be short-lived. Under President Eisenhower in the 1950s, the United States remained largely neutral in the Arab-Israel conflict, providing Israel with lots of economic aid, but no military support. After the Sinai War in 1956, Eisenhower forced Israel to withdraw from captured territory in exchange for certain security guarantees from Egypt and the United Nations. In deference to the need to win and maintain influence with the Arabs, Eisenhower kept Israel at a friendly arm's length. John F. Kennedy came in with both a different attitude and a changed geopolitical scene, and this made for a closer relationship with Israel. For one thing, by the early 1960s, Egypt and Syria had pretty fully gone over to the Soviet Union side, icing out American influence. At the same time, Egypt was fighting a war with Saudi Arabia and Yemen, and Kennedy backed up the Saudis, angering President Nasser of Egypt. So Israel provided a democratic counterbalance in the Middle East. And Kennedy was also savvy to domestic politics. He knew he had captured the Jewish vote in 1960 and wanted them again for the next election. With American Jews increasingly supportive of Israel, he figured on earning even more support from America's Jews by backing a cause to which they were committed. But beyond even both those things, it seemed that Kennedy really believed he could broker peace and stability in the Arab Israeli conflict. Although his relationship with Egypt had soured, he had a decent one with Ben-Gurion and an even warmer one with Israel's foreign minister, Golda Meir. She visited him at his vacation home in Florida in 1963, where they had a long talk about Israel's security and the importance of the country to the Jewish people and to Jewish history. Kennedy reassured her that Israel would be safe on his watch, and he backed up that promise with action. He ended the arms embargo of the Truman and Eisenhower years and sold Israel the latest anti-aircraft missile, called the Hawk. Thus began the decades of American and Israeli military cooperation. Still, there were tensions in what became known under Kennedy as the special relationship. Kennedy was not happy about Israel's development of nuclear weapons at the Dimona Nuclear Research Facility. He was even less happy that Ben-Gurion kept lying to him about it. Every time Kennedy asked what was going on at Damona, Ben-Gurion gave him the same BS about peaceful nuclear energy, which the American intelligence community knew wasn't true, and Ben-Gurion knew that they knew it wasn't true. It was a constant sore point in their relationship, and allegedly the reason why Kennedy never invited Ben-Gurion to an official state dinner. The stories of street online, the Spanish voices laugh. despite his eagerness kennedy's legacy in the middle east wasn't much better than eisenhower's ultimately focused on containing communism and securing oil supplies than on effective peacemaking president lyndon johnson really amped up the close ties with israel after kennedy's assassination in 1963 you have lost a very great friend, but you have found a better one, Johnson told an American diplomat, according to the historian and politician Michael Oren. Like Kennedy, Johnson saw friendliness to Israel as both good geopolitics against the Soviets and a great way to get the Jewish vote. But he also felt a deeper and more genuine connection than that. The historian Robert David Johnson wrote that Johnson's policies stemmed more from personal concerns, his friendship with leading Zionists, his belief that America had a moral obligation to bolster Israeli security, and his conception of Israel as a frontier land, much like his home state of Texas. Johnson believed in the biblical idea that the Jews were God's chosen people and should succeed in their national endeavor. By 1968, as he faced enormous political problems of his own, he told his United Nations ambassador, Arthur Goldberg, that he had an even greater sympathy now for Israel. They haven't got many friends in the world, he said, They're in about the same shape that I am. Historians generally regard Johnson as the president who was most friendly and supportive of Israel. And the Israeli prime minister finally got that official state dinner, though it was Levi Eshkol, not Ben-Gurion. Still, as the war clouds gathered in the middle of the decade, it's not like Israel was top of President Johnson's to-do list. He had plenty of problems both at home and abroad, most especially the worsening Vietnam War, There was little appetite in America to get involved too deeply in Middle Eastern conflicts, and that limited Johnson's ability to help Israel as the Six-Day War approached in 1967. Still, the relationship had come a long way since Truman and Eisenhower. It was clear that America and Israel were going to be drawn ever closer as events in the Middle East and the Cold War drew the two democracies together. In recent decades, America and Israel have been thick as thieves, with a very close strategic military and economic partnership, backed up by shared values around democracy, multiculturalism, and political freedom. Having good friends like America is great. But by 1967, Israel was in desperate need of friends who could also supply weapons and hard-nosed diplomatic support. But both of those were in short supply as Israel's Arab neighbors, led by Egypt, amped up their rhetoric and massed their militaries. Arab leaders everywhere were blunt about what was coming, the final war of annihilation against the Jews and the destruction of their state. Israel desperately tried to stave off war but also prepare for its coming. Many expressed the fear that Goldmeyer had explained to Kennedy four years earlier that hers would be the generation that achieved independence, but then couldn't hold on to it. Coming up on the end of season four, two more episodes left. Today's music was American Jewish artists Dave Taras doing Klezmer, Leonard Bernstein conducting the Star Spangled Banner, and the folk artists Leonard Cohen and Carol King. Thanks for listening, everyone. Mehitra out. See you later.